we're starting a series called uh, Things Jesus Didn't Say. And we're going to be talking about things related to culture. And I just want to give one caveat that I think is important. And for those of you that have been here, you've heard me say this multiple times, but it, it bears repeating. And it's this, that when we brush up against things in culture that don't fit with a biblical worldview, I think it's important to remember that people are not our enemy. Every single person, no matter what they believe, no matter what lifestyle they choose, are made in the image of God and deserve respect and love. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that I agree with the worldview. And I can talk about the ideology of that, um, and particularly how that can infiltrate Christians, a worldview that does not fit uh, with Scripture. We can, we can point that out. But people who believe that, again, are not the enemy. So whatever is said uh, today or in subsequent weeks about things that Jesus didn't say, I want us to remember that. It's very, very important. Okay? Uh, you know, this is not a political statement. Our allegiance is to the Word of God. Okay? And what's funny about that taking place, that if you truly teach the Word of God, you appear to some people maybe as liberal because there are things in the Bible where, you know, whether it's feeding the poor or it might be things about racism, people get upset because they think it's liberal. But it's in the Bible. Or you might be talking about abortion or things against sexual immorality, and that appears really conservative, and some people won't like that. Well, listen, I don't really care how it falls out politically, all right? That's not our job, it, okay? So this is not a political statement, uh, these messages. It's about the Bible and trying to cast light on the culture based upon what the Bible is saying and realizing how easy it is for us to maybe get sucked into that. So just wanted to say that, okay? Let's all stand as we look at our passage together here. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You may be seated. In a New York Times article titled, Faking Cultural Literacy, Carl Greenfield argues that today's social media lets us pretend to know something, almost about everything, even if that knowledge is very shallow. Greenfield mentions a recent survey by the American Press Institute that reveals that six out of ten Americans acknowledge that they know nothing more than what they read in news headlines. Greenfield adds, I quote, we all feel the constant pressure to know enough at all times lest we be revealed as culturally illiterate so that we can survive an elevator pitch, a business meeting, a visit to the office kitchenette so that we can post, tweet, chat, comment, text, 
as if we have seen, read, watched, listened. What matters to us, a wash in information, is not necessarily having actually consumed this content firsthand, but simply knowing that it exists and having a position on it, being able to engage in the chatter about it, end quote. Well, the upshot of this is that we can fake our expertise on a topic. And the takeaway is that our actual knowledge does not match our posture on many topics. Now, it's said that six out of 10 Americans do that, so I know I'm talking to the four out of 10 here. So we're talking about the other guy, okay? I know it doesn't affect you, right? Could this be the case? This shallow understanding. Could this be the case with Christianity and Jesus. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Everybody has an opinion about Christianity. I mean, whether you're an advocate or a critic, it's likely that the knowledge of the subject is not exactly what is seen through the display window. And when confidence is largely based on opinion or feelings, instead of objective evidence, the gap is even wider. I mean, listen, I may have an opinion about my brain surgeon and how excellent he is, but if in reality he's not certified and never graduated from medical school, the difference between opinion and reality is critical, right? So everyone has an opinion of Jesus. But does it matter what the reality is regarding who Jesus is and what he actually said? Let me state three reasons why I think it's important that we know what Jesus actually said. First, Jesus' claims are too important to gloss over. Jesus deals with the prime issues related to life. Two, My life on earth and in eternity hangs in the balance. If I'm wrong, the price to pay is much too high. And three, integrity demands I be honest with myself. I really don't want to be found as a liar. So we're going to tackle the next few weeks some sayings that have been popularized by others and examine if Jesus actually said these things or believed what they represent. The first one today is, love is love. Love is love. Now, let's look at this phrase from a macro level and see if we can understand its meaning. When we say love is love, it implies that it is self-defining. It means any experience of love is is just as valid as any other experience. Any expression of love deserves to be respected and affirmed. But is that our experience as human beings? That love cannot be qualified? and is equally valid and beneficial? 
I mean, love is certainly a foundational reality. It's a powerful thing. But self-defining and without any way to judge its beneficence? Mm. You know, a husband could beat his wife, constantly cheat on her, and says he loves her. If you think that doesn't happen, I've seen it happen. Oh, I love her, I love her, I love her, blah, 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 blah. We have the right to question the claim, right? And something intuitive tells us that every claim of love is not reality. At the least, we know that there are different uh, levels or kinds of love. And at the most, we know that some claims are false. Two 16-year-olds in the back seat saying they love each other is quite different than two 75-year-olds who've been married 50 years expressing love to one another. And you don't need a PhD to know that there's a difference in the kinds of love being expressed. C.S. Lewis, popularized about his four loves, wrote uh, that there are four types of love represented by four Greek terms in the New Testament. One that talks of affection, another friendship, another romance. And then there's Agape, which is this, you know, self-giving, sacrificing love. Each of them are distinct. They're applied differently. So you don't love your favorite meal in the same way that you love your best friend. And you don't love a pet in the same way that you love your spouse. If my wife tells me she loves me like she loves a pet alligator, I might take a little offense at that. These differing loves communicate the idea that love is not self-defining, but differs depending on the circumstances, the intention, the application. So that's a macro understanding of love is love. How about a more specific cultural understanding. Well, this phrase is often heard from members and activists in the LGBTQ community. One participant in a 2016 Love and Equality rally in New York said this, to me, love is love means that my friends and family and anyone who might love someone is able to love them freely and willingly. So the love expressed by an individual or couple is valid regardless of the sexual orientation or gender identity of their lover or partner. The idea is that all people should be allowed to love, often equated with having sex with, whomever they want, however they want, and whenever they want. As long as someone is feeling valued, experiencing happiness, and finding sexual satisfaction, it doesn't matter if the relationship is gay or straight or bi or anything else. Love is love. To others in the LGBT community, they've said um, uh, that love isn't a sin, love isn't wrong, love isn't impure, love isn't a phase, love isn't a disease or mental instability. Love is love, whether it's between a man or a woman, and I'm quoting, or two women, two men, or a woman and a non-binary person, or a man and a non-binary person, or two non-binary people, any two humans. Love is beyond, they said, the trivial differences of 
gender, sex, or sexualities, or romantic or sexual orientations. Love is love. And so it's formed, the saying, to throw off shackles of oppression and bigotry towards LGBTQ people. So it makes the point that love is equally valid and valuable no matter the object or the way that it is expressed. You can hear people like Lady Gaga. Trust me, I have all her music. Lin-Manuel Miranda from Hamilton fame, Ellen DeGeneres, Barack Obama, have all used the phrase that expressed the idea that love should be accepted and celebrated regardless of gender, sexual orientation, or other factors. Now here's an interesting note. Some in the LGBT community do not buy into this saying. And do you know why? Because of pedophilia. Because people are using that phrase as pedophiles. Some are alarmed that the letter P is sneaking its way into the alphabet soup of identification. One advocate who was lesbian wrote this. LGBTQ people who've worked tirelessly for decades to convince society that we are not pedophiles. We come to be accepted in society through our work as social workers, teachers, and probation officers, through our lives as friends, sisters, brothers, cousins, sons, daughters. LGBTQ people pose no danger simply for being LGBTQ. Two years ago, Amnesty International used love as love, and I said why it is wrong to use this phrase, notably, notably that it's being hijacked, and the response to this was hundreds of people saying how homophobic I am. And a small number of LGBTQ people saying they agreed. When we all have different definitions of what love is, it makes phrases like love is love meaningless. When something is so nebulous and can mean anything, it's easy to hijack. End quote. Those last two statements make sense to me. So with that as a background, what is it that Jesus has actually said about love? Now, if you follow the nearly 100 times that love is mentioned in the New Testament or anywhere in the Old or New Testament, you will not find this phrase at all, never. However, you could say, well, he may not have used the phrase, but Maybe he was in favor of the idea that love is however you define it with whomever and whenever we want. Let's look at some of the facts from a biblical standpoint. Let us recognize that Jesus consistently conveyed love distinct from the secular and even parts of the religious culture that misunderstood it. And I think we have to do the same, right? Because we have parts of the religious culture that say, yeah, I love you, but then rail on a person. It's like, eh, I really don't want that kind. Okay? Sorry. And then there are those that are just so permissive with it. So the fact is, though, is that Jesus consistently conveyed a love distinct 
from these cultures that misunderstood it. For instance, he said to a group of his followers, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so obviously Jesus was not accepting everyone's understanding of love, but was defining it from his father and himself. So there are some claims that don't have to be accepted about love. Try a couple other things Jesus said about love. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. And when speaking to the Jews, Jesus said, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Whoa. So, first of all, we see that love originates from God, this agape love. And clearly, the empty claim of the Pharisees steeped in religion, thinking they had the corner on the market of love, was a ruse. Jesus exposed them for not understanding or practicing love. So clearly, Jesus did not accept all brands of love. Moving away from thinking love is defined by passionate desire or merely sexual connection, we also hear Jesus say this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Wow. That raises the standard. Remember the situation where the Pharisees brought an adulterous woman before Jesus and wanted to stone her? That was in John 8. She was caught in adultery. Jesus protected her valued her, but he ended the encounter with these words, go and sin no more. Again, Jesus valued her, but he was not in approval of a lifestyle of sexual immorality. Love is not love, when we idolize and sanction all sexual experiences while ignoring God's instruction for sex between a married man and woman. In addition, when questioned by the Pharisees about marriage and divorce, Jesus reaffirmed the created order of a gendered male, gendered female in unity and covenant of marriage in Matthew 19. The man that Jesus was closer to than any other man on earth, you'd have to say he knew Jesus pretty well. He learned from Jesus. He wrote this. It was John. Behold, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. 
And this is love, not that we've loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Clearly, love is not something that we invent or divine, uh, uh, define, but it is from God. So to love best, we have to know the love of God and operate in the strength of God. And you read further in John, you get this idea that, that God exists in fellowship and relationship within the Trinity. God himself never existed in a lonely, solitary fashion, but he existed in the fullness of relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the entire Godhead enjoys a perfect union, perfect relationship within the Trinity. So when God created man in his image, man was created for a similar kind of fellowship and relationship, not only with God, but with others. 1 Corinthians eleven seven, the Apostle Paul says, man is the image and glory of God. No other animal is made in his image. Now, there might be biological similarities, but humans are unique. We're made in the image of God, outfitted to partake in a depth of relationship and fellowship that no other animal can enjoy to that degree. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that all humans experience those relationships, but we have the capacity to love others, love God, and experience the richest of earthly existence with that love. And we're not talking about marriage. It's anybody can experience that love, right? So being made in the image of God, in short, it's the capacity for giving and receiving love, enjoying community, family, the body of Christ. But listen, if we're just animals, okay, if we're going to, if we're going to adopt this naturalistic, materialistic worldview, then what's the purpose except pleasure? That's the end result. And sex has no purpose other than pleasure or maybe just expanding your species. And so fulfilling hedonistic desire. In that worldview, marriage under a covenant between a man and a woman is nonsensical. And in our culture, where the greatest good is to be happy, we define happiness with the freedom to do what we want, whenever we want, and the greatest evil is having any constraint on our freedom. Agape love constrains itself. for the good of the community, the good of the family, the good of the spouse. You know what love is love ends up being? It's a statement to unshackle from marriage and God's created order. Our passage says that love flows 
out of or from God. It means this kind of love wouldn't exist if it weren't for God as the fount, the spring, the source. Now, John is speaking of agape love, and people can experience those other three kinds of loves, but I don't think a person can experience. And John says, you're not going to experience agape love unless you are vibrantly connected to the God of the universe. It's not enough to just be a Christian. You are walking with him. You are abiding in him. The love of God, and Joel did a great job last week in talking about the primacy of this love that we receive from God. This is the foundation that we live our Christian life. But if we don't understand that love from God, it screws with every relationship. Because then our, our, um, our security, our significance is going to be found in some other thing, our performance or other people recognizing us. But when we receive this from God and we're abiding in him, it gives us the freedom to love even when I'm not loved back. It's life-changing. Again, it takes more than just walking an aisle, praying a prayer, but I, I am dying to my flesh saying yes to the Spirit, walking in the power of Christ, sacrificing myself for others, that is a supernatural thing. I have to abide in Christ for that to happen. How can a person walk in agape love without being redeemed by Christ and abiding in him? How can they love? They don't. Not agape love. Again, to use Lewis, you can walk into three other loves, but one cannot agape without Christ. Christ is not only the model of self-sacrificial love, he's the source for producing it. And John is saying only those who know Christ in a very real sense, intimately abiding with him, are going to do this. Listen, I was having a conversation with somebody this week about this who's you know, disappointed in life, been let down by other people, you know, woe is me kind of thing. And I'm like, well, now what? stop right here for a second. Um, tell me what it's like between you and God. Do, do you feel like you're truly abiding? Do you feel like that daily you're, you're drinking from the goodness of God? You understand his love. I'm not, I'm not talking about going to church. That's good. But daily abiding in him, enjoying his presence, communing with him to where he, he fills up your soul. Because it seems to me if you're walking in this insecurity and this constant disappointment and the constant complaints, that's not the fruit of abiding. But if you abide in Christ, these things are put in a much different perspective. In fact, you know what I have found? The hurts, even the deepest hurts from people that you deeply care about are not for the purpose of just escaping from or never talking about. That's our normal mode. But maybe, just maybe, 
God is using some of these deepest hurts as a touch point to understand his love for us. That I, I lean into the pain and I meet with God and say, God, I'm feeling really desperate right now. I feel really fearful or insecure, whatever it is. And you're, you're opening yourself up to God. You're allowing the, the Holy Spirit to touch that area of, of your life that's really hurt. And something begins to happen to where the, the Holy Spirit begins to bring you comfort. And, and His Word takes on new meaning. And the, and the fellowship strengthens. And you realize, oh, this is what I've been missing. And see, when you have that kind of abiding, I can endure through the hardships instead of just trying to escape from them. It's not enough just to have our sins forgiven, even though that's important, or, you know, to be a Christian. But I have to daily walk with him. The world accentuates a romantic or physical love. You know, as long as the feelings are, are there, we're good to go. So when people fall out of love, sayonara, right? Well, that's not the kind of love Jesus talked about. That's not a love fit for marriage. Now, there are portions of marriage, obviously, that can experience that, but that's not the thing that keeps you going. I mean... If we're going to say, as long as my partner does their part, I'm happy. <laughs> Listen, no marriage, no marriage can stand under the expectations that all of my needs are going to be met by my partner. None. One source I heard said that only 25% at best of our emotional needs can be met in marriage. Whoa. Really? Well, Janet learned that after the first day of marriage. It, <laughs> I was going to fall short, right? Listen, no matter what the percentage actually is of how our needs can be met in marriage, it's by abiding in Christ, relishing in his love, that we can have our emotional and spiritual needs met. This is what God is calling us to, to experience agape love, something deeply spiritual, something that touches my soul. I know, and I've experienced it, that we can go for long stretches feeling angry at God, disappointed with God, disappointed with our spouse. Probably has a lot to do with expectations, but whatever. How does that change if I'm truly relishing in the love of God and my security and significance are in him? Notice one of the reasons that John gives that Jesus came to die in verse 9 of our passage in 1 John. So that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. All my needs, my security, my significance, 
forgiveness of sins of the past, power to live today, hope for the future tomorrow, they're going to be found in him. To the degree that we look to Christ for all these things, I think it's to the degree that we abide in him. Just like I said earlier, we're humbly, like a child, acknowledging our need before God. So all of our love that we're expressing to others is a reflection of the love we're experiencing with God and abiding in him. So a, one problem of the love is love mantra is that it's so self-focused. Christ calls us to something vastly different. And it took his sacrificial love for us on a cross to break our stony hearts. Fleshly, independent, I'm going to do it my way. To bring us to himself and realize that he wants to give us an abundant life where he's pouring into our hearts an understanding of his love for us. I spoke with a friend who lives in another state this week, and I was sharing about how much I appreciate conversation with many of my friends, many within our church. Diversity of people, different political background, um, different faith backgrounds. Um, we talk about personal issues, substantive conversation, not agreeing on everything, but still experiencing a depth of love. To me, that's what the church ought to be. Not uniformity, where we're all the same, but true unity. That because of our common faith in Christ, we have the difficult conversations. And what I realize is that some people just don't have the stomach for relationships that delve deep and enjoy this kind of fellowship because it's too hard with, at, at that point of conflict or disagreement. We just don't know how to traffic through it. And yet, I don't need an explanation from you. I can just love you even if we disagree. And if we want to talk about it, that's fine. But I don't have a need to, okay? When we meet at Thanksgiving or Christmas with our family, I don't have to talk politics. I don't have to talk religion. I'll just love you the way you are, right? That's the way it should be with us. Right? Hmm. You know what he said to me? He said, I've been going to our church for years. And I don't have one person that I can have that kind of conversation. Wow. By the way, this is not some wallflower, okay? Business owner. Not on the sidelines. Type A kind of guy, leader. It made me appreciate all the more this place, you, where love can be experienced in a deep way. I love our life group. I love the deep discussions. And it's because we know that Christ is our fount and that our relationships will be endured and enjoyed even when we disagree because we've proved it. There is something 
about a healthy family, a healthy church, where over decades you see that happen. Which, by the way, you won't see it going to a different church every three or four years. But you see it over time, the endurance. That you travel through the troubled waters. Didn't agree. But you know what? Still love you. But some don't want to because they get too upset about the differences because you have to agree. See, that's not love. That's performance. Uniformity. That's not what God is calling us to. It's a true unity. Love. Even if you're a Cubs fan, love. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Listen, I wouldn't trade that kind of fellowship for all the money in the world. See, I don't think love is self-defining. I don't think Jesus thought that either. I don't think we can just make love whatever we want it to be. Jesus didn't think that. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray.